0: So open our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 6. The way we learn is by being a little bit repetitious, and so I'll be a little repetitious in laying the groundwork for Zechariah. Um, tonight we'll finish chapter 6. So if you're taking notes, 1 through 6 is um, visions that Zechariah, at least 10 of them, is going to receive in one single evening. 1 through 6 is going to deal uh, while the the building is being built, the temple. And um, 9 through 14 is going to be written after the temple is completed, which leaves us with 7 and 8. And I don't really know quite how to describe this, except one of the theme, themes is as we uh, study the Bible. Oh, let me just... Um, I think uh, the book of Ruth would be a good example. So if you're studying the book of Judges, you have a 360-year period of time where you have all the judges that ever judged Israel. And then you have the book of Ruth that begins with, it was during the time of the judges. So what we have with the book of Ruth is just a slice that of, a, of a person's life, Naomi and Ruth and her sons, and we have a story that is just taken out of that period of time. Now I'm going to liken that to our chapters, because as we finish chapter 6 tonight, it is while we're still in the mode of trying to encourage the people to get back to work. That's Zachariah's job. But now when we get into 7 and 8, it's sort of that slice that's going to zero in, on the attitudes of the people. Now, remember, Zechariah's ministry is to encourage them not to lose heart. Uh, We talked last week about Shambalat and Tobiah, and um, that brought opposition and um, difficulty, discouragement, uh, while they were doing the work. And uh, we use it as a parallel in our walks with the Lord, that as we're about our father's business, There will be the Shambals and the Tobias that rise up with opposition and discouragement. And uh, we're told in Peter not to think it's strange when that happens. Don't think it's strange that you're going to have fiery trials as though some strange thing is happening to you. That's why it's important that we explain this to believers who accept Jesus as their Savior. We need to be honest with them that you're in for a war. And um, the first thing that you should do is count the cost. Am I really willing to live the Christian life? And all that goes along with that. In the parable of the sower, you can't get past the second one. It says in time of temptation, he fell away. Why? Because he wasn't equipped. Nobody sat him down and said, look, this is the way that leads to life is narrow and few be that find it. And... Um, But broad is the gate and wide that leads to destruction, and and many will find that. Well, I don't know if I like hearing that or not. Well, it's the truth, (laughs) and it's part of um, the life that we have as being Christians. And they're all, like we mentioned last week, uh, I think it was on Sunday, we have the mountaintop experiences, and then we have uh, the times of um, spiritual warfare. And um, unless you have formed a pattern, let's put it that way, in your life, a disciplined pattern, Jesus said it was his custom to go to the synagogue. It was his custom. And in some, I'm going to talk about rituals in a little bit, some can be good and some can be bad, but the Bible lays out how church should be done. And um, we'll, it'll be one of our side topics tonight. And if we follow the biblical pattern rather than man's pattern, it's very doable. If you set your priorities according to Scripture. So as we look at seven and eight tonight, okay. Let me repeat: between verses chapter one and chapter six, um, there's these visions, and um, uh, while the temple is being built. And then 9 through 14 is going to take us uh, tonight, uh, and then two more weeks to finish up Zechariah, if we do three chapters each time. Uh, But right in the middle, we have this slice of uh, what the people were going through, uh, customs they had developed that the Lord did not give to them. They had questions and rituals that uh, the Lord had not asked them to do, and so we have a problem. It's a people problem, and uh, that it will be seven and eight. But let's go to chapter six and finish up where Zechariah would still be in the mode of, um, of encouraging the people, and remember that we talked about these being uh, double prophecies. And in the first eight verses, we have, um, let's just read it and I'll come back. Uh, to it and comment on it. <clears throat> then I turned and raised my eyes, and I looked, for behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. And with the first chariot were red horses, and with the second chariot, black horses, and with the third chariot, white horses, and with the fourth chariot, a dappled horses, strong steeds. And then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, well, what are these, my Lord? An angel answered and said to me, these are the four spirits of heaven, and they go out through their stations before the Lord of the whole earth. The one with the black horse is going to the north country. The white are going after them. The dappled are going towards the south country. And then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk and go throughout the earth. And he said, Go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he said to me and spoke to me, saying, See, these who go towards the north countrymen have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Well, after last Sunday's study with the woman in the basket and how obscure It was, unless there already was a pattern established in the first couple chapters, and I think I went through this last week, that chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, are clearly the Lord living with his people during the millennial kingdom. So here in the Old Testament, we're talking prophecy. And then we went to uh, chapter Three and I pointed out that it mentioned the branch. Clearly a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see that in this chapter, even in a more clear and direct way. And the pattern that is beginning to emerge is that Ezekiel is very much like the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Matter of fact, in chapter four, the most obvious of these is a clearer clear as crystal, that uh, the two olive branches has a double fulfillment. One would have been local to Zerubbabel, that he was going to be an encouragement, nothing, there was going to be no mountain that could stop him. And we find that in chapter four, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel's um, was to be an encouragement to the people. And this is when we talked about Shambalat and Tobiah opposition to stop the work from being done. Well, that was the local application in in the book of Zechariah. But the double prophecy is the rest of verse 11 through 14, where it talks about, in verse 14, that these two olive trees are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth, clearly fulfilled, not yet, But when we get to the book of Revelation, in chapter 11, the two witnesses, it says, these are the two olive trees that stand before the Lord of the whole earth, word for word, a direct quote from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 14. So, are you with me with seeing a pattern develop? That these visions that Zechariah are having are twofold. And we're going to see that again tonight. And as we look at these, you can't look at the color of these horses that are represented here. And it starts with the two mountains, the two mountains um, of brass. The majority of people that comment on this uh, in commentaries agree that these two mountains probably are Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives, which would locate these four chariots down in the Kidron Valley. Uh, if you're standing on a Mount of Olives, that's one thing. And it goes down, and then you have the Kidron, and then it begins to go back up, and then you have the Temple Mount. But between that is what most uh, commentaries believe is um, what we have in view here. And then it describes for us the colors of the horses are significant. And because we've already laid a foundation that much of the prophecies are tying into Revelation. You can't read the colors of these horses without dealing with Revelation chapter 6 that begins with, When the seal was opened, I saw a rider on a white horse. Now, unfortunately, there's too many commentaries out there that say that Jesus is the rider on this white horse because of Revelation 19, when the Lord returns on a white horse. But when the Lord returns on a white horse, he puts an end to all war and he establishes his kingdom. Good place for an amen. But not at the beginning. This is the very first seal that's opened and we have a rider on a white horse that's followed by a rider on a a red horse who's followed by a rider on a black horse who's followed on a rider in a, a pale horse. And we have a progression. Now, why don't we just turn there quickly, go to Revelation chapter um, 6 without going through it too much. So again, we're making a direct, I think, connection with, oh, people have no idea. Nobody is emphasizing, we talk about World War One and World War Two. World War One and World War II. World War I and World War II we nothing we had more people killed during the Civil war than than we did then, but this is going to be a world war, and it 's going to break out as the whole world is 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 going to be at at war now don 't let the colors here um, that are mentioned uh, throw you off uh, because um Let's just read verse 1 here. We have, and I look to behold the white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and he went out to conquer and to conquer. To me, this is clearly the Antichrist. The verse that um, I would tie in with this, and when we get into the next vision, is going to be Joshua and, and the building of the temple. So there is a temporary peace According to Daniel 9, verse 27, that the Antichrist will make for seven years with the nation of Israel. But then it says he's going to break his treaty with Israel in the middle of the week. In other words, after three and a half years. So he goes out, and again, try to picture this. First of all, nobody today emphasizes just how frightfully dreadful and terrible the great tribulation is going to be. You can't get through this chapter without one quarter of the earth's population being destroyed. Can I say that again? One quarter of the earth's population is going to be destroyed in the fourth seal. So we have the Antichrist going out to conquer. Remember that the world is in shock because of the rapture of the church. And we have the second seal open and, and a voice saying, Come and see in a fiery red horse. And that's what we read here. Uh, the first horse here in, in Zechariah is a red horse. Uh, and the second was black. And here we have um, the red horse, fiery red, went out. It was granted to him who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And it was given to him a great sword. So this is, if you go to verse 17, God's judgment that he is allowing. He's sending forth these horsemen. Jesus is the one opening the seals. The church age has come to an end, and literally all hell is going to break loose. Verse 17 says, For the great day of his wrath, um, his with a capital letter, meaning the Lord, has come, and who is able to stand? Um, verse um, five of chapter six. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, "Come and see." And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he was seated, and had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, "A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but don't hurt." Hurt or, or harm the oil and the wine. Well, what follows war but famine, and um, uh, to a degree that we've never experienced before. But evidently, at the same time, there, well, you know, those who are well-to-do uh, is represented by oil and the wine, fine living and luxury still exist. While there's this major famine going on because of, um, because of the uh, scales, because of the war. In other words, a, a whole day's uh, wages. How much did you make today? Just think among your, about it. All your money you made today, whether you get paid by the hour or you're a salary person, it's going to take all that just to get by to buy one meal. Literally living from day to day. Which brings us to the fourth seal. And now we have what follows war, what follows famine, but death. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of, of the four living creatures say, Come and see it. And I looked and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death, and hell followed after him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger and with death by the beast of the earth. You know, I can't put it into words. People, we've, we've become so complacent, and we've, we've sort of gotten into a groove, especially in America, that we're not expecting this. When they say peace and safety, all of a sudden it just happens. Uh, the Lord says it's going to be like in the days of Noah, and people were buying and selling and marrying and giving in marriage, and everything's fine, everything's normal. But then all of a sudden it happens. And the Lord comes. One will be in the bed, one will be taken, one will be left alive. You don't think that's going to blow the world's mind? And we we talk about it uh, sort of glibly, but um, this is a reality that the Bible teaches. And we have glimpses of it and shadows of it. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. Now, if you go back to Zechariah, chapter 6, and read it in the light of what we've gone through so far. We've already talked in Zechariah about the kingdom, about the branch that's going to reign over it. We've talked about the two witnesses. We talked about, last week on Sunday, um, the world judging the economic system that's going to be built somewhere. The center of world commerce is going to be somewhere in the in um uh, the valley of the Shinar, if you go to chapter 5, verse 11, uh, a house is being prepared, and when it's ready, it'll, its base will be set there. And it's a very, um, wow, uh, very descriptive way of talking about Revelation chapter 18. Now, if you weren't here Sunday, you can pick up the DVD, and um, you can see our Sunday that we, a message that we had there. The colors here of the the horses uh, shouldn't show, uh, Where it tells us here that um, the white horse, and then it mentions uh, the dappled horse. Um, Dappled here, um, if I find my notes here, where it talks about the color of the horse, basically would be another way of describing a, a pale horse, the one that would represent death in Revelation chapter 6. The grizzle and the bay horse of Zacharias are probably more accurately translated as dapple, as if sprinkled with hail, and would correspond to the pale horse of the book of Revelation chapter 6. The tenth vision was given to Zechariah for the encouragement of his people, knowing that God would judge the Gentile nations as he would judge his own people. So as he's giving the message, he's saying, don't think that these Gentiles aren't going to be held accountable. And when it gets right down to um, sort of an urgency, um, if the righteous are barely saved, where does a sinner stand? There's a verse that said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. A living God who has agenda. He has his plans, and nothing are going to change his plans. Okay, simple question at this point. Do you have plans? And have you laid them out? This is what I want to do here. This is what I want to do here. This is what I want to do here. And there's nothing wrong with that, as long as you put in the parentheses, if the Lord wills. Now, there's another good place for an amen. It's okay to have plans. But my further question would be, Once you really get a grasp on God's plan, he's telling his people over and over again, this is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen for seven years. And nothing's going to change the Lord coming for his people for the rapture of the church. Nothing is going to change one quarter of this world from being destroyed by war, famine, followed by death. And so what we have here is the Lord saying nobody's getting away with anything. And those uh, who do, do not have the fear of the Lord and have heard the gospel are going to enter into this terrible period of time. And it's going to happen very, very quickly. And when they say peace and safety, then this is what happens. So that's, uh, it's interesting to me that almost every chapter so far, Direct connection, dovetail with the book of Revelation. Notice here that none of the horses go to the west. Why? That would put them in the Mediterranean Sea if you live in Israel. And none of the sea uh, horses go to the east. That would put them into the Arabian Desert. They go to the north and to the south, which is the way one goes if you're coming or going from Israel. You either come up from the south, from the Egyptian side up up through the Sinai there, or you come down from the from the north, which would be um, uh, making your way into Asia. All right, so that is one uh, the the vision that uh, closes chapters one through six. And I'll be repetitive here by saying, remember, this is during while well, people are still involved with building the wall and building the temple. Now. If you just look at chapter 9, uh, we have judgment of the coming nations. Um, we have one of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament. We have verse, if you look at 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly. Riding on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. Well, that, that is Palm Sunday, April 632 A.D., the very day when the people were quoting Psalm 118, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, Bless, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was a messianic psalm that could only be sung about the Messiah. And so Zechariah 9.9, 9, what do we see again? A double prophecy. But that was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. Well, if you look at verse 10, we have a gap of 2,000 years where it says, And I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. And then he, as a reference to Jesus, will speak peace to the nations And his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What's your point, Dwight? Well, this is chapter 9. Chapter 9 through 14 is the Lord speaking after the temple and the walls are rebuilt and the people are back, settled back in. But we haven't left off Zechariah without pointing out prophecies one of them has been fulfilled. Jesus rode that donkey that nobody ever had sat on before, and that happened. And uh, But what hasn't happened yet is the kingdom hasn't come. And the reason I believe it's so repetitive is so that we can get our heads wrapped around God's plans and not the other way around. We usually go to the prayer to the Lord with, Lord, this is really what I want done for my life. And the Lord is thinking, well, you know, I sort of have plans of my own, and I was sort of hoping you'd line up with my plans rather than me line up with your plans. And if you line up with my plans, if you're faithful in the little things and serving me now, then I'll cause you to be faithful over many things later. Why isn't the church doing this today? Because basically the church has gotten away from teaching the book of Zechariah. If you teach the book of Zechariah, guess what? You've got to deal with Bible prophecy. Why, why are you always dealing with Bible prophecy? Because when you teach the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, you have to deal with Bible prophecy. Amen somewhere? <laughs> you can't get around it. But it's not comfortable to stand before you and say, Look, are you aware that as soon as we're gone, one quarter of the people on this planet aren't going to be here because of war, death, and famine? Well, who wants to talk about that? That's, that's a downright bummer, and that's discouraging. And it may be all the above, but guess what? It's true. Jesus said heaven and earth is going to pass away, but not what I just said. Nothing can stop what I just said from happening. Uh, the UN can't stop it. President Trump can't stop it. Benjamin Netanyahu can't stop it. What the Lord has said here uh, in Zechariah about these horsemen going out and uh, going into the earth and brings about what real world war is all about, it's going to happen. And um, we can't skip over the parts we don't like. All right, next vision verses 9 through 15. Double application. We have the crowning of Joshua. Now, during this time, Joshua, um, still in the building project mode, would have been the high priest. Problem is, he doesn't have a temple. And to perform the duties of the high priest and the offerings, you need a temple. So we read in verse 9, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldiah to Tobjah and Jediah, who have come from Babylon. And go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, and take the silver and gold and make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, uh, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Okay, notice all capital letters, a reference to Jesus Christ. From his place he will branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So catch this. We have a local high priest who says, make a crown for him. Put it on him because the temple's going to be done. It's going to be finished. He's going to go back. And then it switches and it talks about the branch, a definite article that beholds one man, the man. From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and he shall sit and rule on his throne and he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So here again, a double prophecy. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40. As we go back to, uh, if we go back to chapter 35, what we have is 35 and 36 and 37. We have a chronological progression of the people being out of the land and then coming back into the land. That's what 35, 36, and 37 are all about. And the Lord is going to restore the land so it looks like the Garden of Eden again, when it was barren. And then we have in 38 and 39 what we call the Ezekiel War. And this is where we have uh, those nations that line up against Jerusalem. The stage is set for that battle right now. Everything is in place. For many years as I was teaching through the Bible, I said, well, Turkey's just not not lined up. For years they tried to get into uh, the UN, and there was always bickering of them getting in or not getting in, but you really couldn't say they were a part. But Ezekiel 38 says Turkey has to be a part. And... um, it was interesting, Elijah Abraham called today, and we were talking about current events in the Middle East. And he mentioned the crown prince um, from Saudi Arabia. And I asked him if, if he knew about his uh, his plan to, to build this future city, and I was surprised he, he hadn't heard about that, but he was giving me other information that we have already talked about that dealt with... Um, the president of Turkey and the seriousness of Trump's move to take the embassy from Jerusalem, uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He says this is really, really major as far as Turkey is concerned. My point is that this really sets the stage for Ezekiel 38 to be fulfilled. 39 is basically the cleanup And it tells us that those who come against Israel, uh, chapter 39, verse 1, says five six. It even gets into that much detail. Five six of those, after the Lord gets directly involved with judgment, are killed. Five six are killed on the hills and the mountains of Israel, and only one sixth remain. And then chapter 39 tells us that the Lord's going to send fire on Russia. And um, that's sort of the cleanup. But then, after that, now from chapter 40, and that's where I want you to turn to right now, we're studying in Zechariah that the branch is going to do what? He's going to build the temple. Do you know that the dimensions, when you start with chapter 40 of Ezekiel, uh, my cross-reference says um, uh, the vision of the man with the measuring rod, and he begins to measure the temple. It talks about in verse 5, the outer court of the temple. If you go to verse 28, the inner court and its measurements of the temple and how precise they are. I'll just, just read, um, well, just, just to give you some idea of, of um, the complexity of this job and how it's already laid out. If you just look at chapter 40, I'll I'll just look down verse 17. He brought me to the outer court, and there were chambers and a pavement made all around the court. 30 chambers face the pavement. The pavement was by the side of the gateway corresponding to the length of the gateway. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gateway to the front of the inner court, exterior 100 cubics towards the east and towards the west, So on and so on and so on. If you look at 28, now it's the inner court that's being measured. If you look at verse 48, it's the temple vestibule. All of chapter 41 is the measurements, excuse me, of the temple itself. Uh, Chapter 42 is the chamber and the measurements of the outer court of the temple. And then in 15 to 20, the place of separation um, and just what the measurements are going to be there. And in chapter 43, after the temple that we read in Zechariah that the Lord personally oversees and builds, 43 is the return of the Shekinah glory to the temple. In chapter 44, we have the duties of the priest uh, the measurements of the the, the burnt offerings, and um, let's go back. I think I've made my point. Let's go back to Zechariah, and we read, "Behold, in verse twelve, the branch whose man whose name is a branch. He will branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord precisely to the dimensions that we see starting in." Uh, Ezekiel chapter forty, and um, then it goes back and it switches back, verse fourteen. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord, uh, for Helam, Tobijah, Jedediah, and Han the son of Zephaniah. Even those who are far away shall come and build the temple of the Lord. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. All right. We've just finished a section of the Bible. But let me do a little rabbit trail here. Because what we just read here tells us clearly that the builder of the temple has to be the Messiah. Now imagine being a, a, a um a rabbinical Jew orthodox and all you do all day long if you if, if, when you go to Israel and you go to the Temple Mount all they do is read the scriptures and pray. And so what are they reading? Well, they're reading the Old Testament. So you have people who are reading this and you, and you get to Zechariah and you see here that only the branch can be the overseer and the builder of the temple. Now, the point that I want to make here is this is probably the greatest sting or set up in human history. And Israel is being set up right now in a way like I've never seen anything be set up before. Now, when we go to Israel we always visit the Temple Mount Institute, which is dedicated uh, for the rebuilding of the temple. And I've said this often, that I've known Rabbi Richmond, who started this thing for over 30 years. And he's insistent, as we talk about this, that it cannot be built unless the Messiah comes. And where he gets that is from the verses that we just read. He's a Jew. He's not going to read New Testament. He's reading the Old Testament. Now they've been waiting for their temple. They talk about it all the time. They have everything ready to go, from the garments to the high priests to the trumpets to the, the shovels that will carry the coals out after the offerings. It's all signs, sealed, and delivered. stunned. So there's waiting. There's other people that want to build it, but, but not the Sanhedrin, which he is a part of, And he's insistent that only the Messiah can give them permission to rebuild the temple. So, what do we read after the church is taken out? Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Well, let's let's just turn to it. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. All of a sudden, the world is in chaos. Shock. The unthinkable has happened. We need a world leader. We need to bring peace because it seems like we're going to get to it in chapter 12 where it talks about Jerusalem becoming a cup of trembling. Where everybody's talking about the the problem with Jerusalem. What are we going to do with it? Somebody's got to make peace. And so in verse 27, God owes Israel seven more years. He, in verse 27, is a reference To the Antichrist, not the Lord Jesus Christ, but the Antichrist. So there's going to be some sort of peace treaty uh, for seven years, one week. But he breaks it in the middle of the week, and he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In order to have sacrifice and offering, what do you have to have? Somebody just say it out loud. What do you have to have to have sacrifice and offering? A temple. Is that reaffirmed in Second Thessalonians chapter 2? Absolutely. It says, a man of sin who goes into the temple showing himself that he is God. What's happening right now? The biggest setup in world history. Because a peace man is going to show up on the scene. He says, I got all your answers for you. We're going to build the temple. We're going to give the Jews exactly what you want. Only the Messiah can do that. Therefore, that makes you the Messiah. He's not anti-Christ in the sense that he's against Christ. He's a false Christ. Now, what did Jesus say in Matthew 24 about the last days? Beware of false prophets and false Christs. What are they going to do? Show great signs and wonders to deceive the very elect. Okay, you say you're the Messiah? Yeah, I am the Messiah. Well, show us something. So the false prophet who he has with him, Calls fire down from heaven. You think that would be impressive? Comes back from a deadly head wound. And the whole world wonders and says, well, who can fight against this guy? He's God in the flesh. And he's proving it by the miracles. Boy, that should give us a heads up. And whenever we see a miracle, if uh, that happens and a miracle happens, you know your first question, what do you want me to believe because of it? What goes along with what just happened? And, um, you know, go back as far as you want to. Go back to Egypt and Moses performing miracles. Was the pharaoh impressed? Not at first. Janus, Jambry, come on over. They duplicated every miracle up to a certain point that Moses and Aaron could do. What's your point, Dwight? Well, the Satan has the power to turn himself into an angel of light if he wants to. And miracles, apparently, um, don't seem to be a problem with him when the Lord takes his hands off this planet and he allows him to have his time. He does have his time. So uh, getting back, I don't want you to miss the main point that I'm trying to make here. They are set up right now, and after the rapture, he comes on the scene with a peace plan, And if the daily sacrifice is taken away, um, um, that means there has to be a temple. Does Jesus verify this? Oh, absolutely. Matthew chapter 24. We don't have to turn to it. I'll just flip to it real quick. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, what I just read, standing in the holy place, what's the holy place? Well, that's, the holy place is the temple. When you see that, he says, run. Because you've just been duped. And he tells Israel to head for the hills. And he says, uh, don't even go back into your house. Woe to those who are pregnant and are nursing in those days. Pray that your flight won't be on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. So the second half... Of the as you study the book of Revelation, it's an escalation of going from one quarter of the earth's population till you get to the point where near the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments to another third of the earth's population being destroyed, and um, so um, Zechariah talked about it, Daniel talked about it. Paul talked about it in 2 Thessalonians. And uh, we see the fulfillment of John's writing about it in the book of Revelation. What is set up? All right, let's get back to um, Zechariah. And so we've made it through one chapter, and am I in trouble? (laughs) All right. Well, 7 and 8 are different. And it's more of a people problem now, so we're shifting gears big time. Remember I told you at the beginning of the study that seven and eight are just a slice of what's going on of the people that are returning from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it's addressing their problem in chapter seven and eight. Um, what we have here is a sort of like an interlude, and there's questions concerning that they have the people coming back from Babylon uh, with religious rituals, such as fasting. And um, in verse 1, we have the date given to us here, the fourth day of the month, which is uh, uh, Shezlev. If you would do that in modern terms, and I gave you that date, it would be December 4th, 518 B.C. That's what verse 1 is, seven, is saying and. In this first verse, the date is December 4th, 518 B.C. Uh, This would have been the same period of time that Haggai was speaking to the people in a very practical way uh, while they were building the temple. Now verse 2, when the people sent Sherezer and Regman Melech and his men to the house of God, to pray before the Lord. Okay, I have to stop and explain this because these names are, they're Jews, but they've taken on Babylonian names. And when it says the house of God, don't think Jerusalem. Bethel, this um, was located in the northern kingdom of Israel and is a place where Jeroboam put one of the golden calves to be worshiped. Now, this delegation was not made up of men of the tribe of Judah. They were probably from the tribe of Ephraim. The fact that this delegation came down from Bethel indicates that people from the ten so-called lost tribes were not lost at all. Some of them were living in Bethel. And if you read the book of Ezra very carefully, you will find that many people who returned from the Babylonian captivity didn't necessarily return to Jerusalem, but to the towns that they lived in when Nebuchadnezzar came in and took all of Israel captive. So now we have the, this reference to the house of God, but that was also a term used for um, uh, Ephraim and Bethel or that area in northern Israel. These men, let's read verse 3, And they came to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast, as I have done for so many years? So these men have come down. It's sort of like in Psalm 137, verses 1 and 2. It writes about, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. And they sobbed before the the Lord became, and that became sort of a a religious function. And they began to designate, not because the Lord asked them to, but they just designated their own time when they would fast. They had set aside days of fasting and days of weeping and mourning uh, during the captivity. Uh, Yet they're weeping and they're mourning as they said, we have been doing this, but God isn't blessing us. I mean, we're fasting and we're praying and we're doing this ritual all the time, and and yet the Lord isn't blessing us. Um, And here they had established their own way of of worship. In verse 4, they're rebuked. Uh, for their hypocrisy. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Say to the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month during those 70 years, evidently they had set up a time in the fifth and the seventh month, we're going to do this, we're going to fast. The Lord says, did you really do it for me? Question mark. When you ate and when you drank, And when you eat and drink, did you do it for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and were prosperous in the south and the lowland were inhabited? Is it too late to be doing religious obligations that you're putting on yourself? Question, why didn't you listen to me in the first place when Jeremiah told you to get back right with the Lord so that you didn't have to go there. So imagine being put in this place and they come up now with a whole new form of putting something on the people on the 5th and the 7th month that the Lord didn't ask them to do. Instead, he says, why don't you listen to me in the first place in verses 4 through 7. So now we have the beginning of human rituals and religion And boy, could I get sidetracked here. Human rituals, fasting and praying. While I'm doing this, I want you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And if you take nothing home with you tonight, I want to give you a model that is biblical. I like to go online and listen to different churches' models on how they're doing things. I was listening to one this week that's starting a whole new program about the Bible and stories in the Bible. Matter of fact, they talked about the Bible during his whole message, but never opened the Bible once. Not once. He didn't read one verse of Scripture and what he said in the first sentence is what he said in the last sentence and it was 37 minutes in between and i just and i just thought lord we've gotten away from what you have established as how the church should be modeled but before i get there let's talk about rituals if you were brought up either in roman catholicism or mainline protestantism you were taught a series Of rituals and the denomination the Protestant denomination that I grew up in we said the Apostles Creed we said the Lord's Prayer and um, it was bam 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 and it was the same every week the Lord addresses this when it comes to human rituals and here was a problem that was being addressed through Zechariah to these people who were returning In the Lord's time, in Matthew 6, I'm going to read 5, 6, and 7. He says, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue, or on the corners, or on the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you pray, just go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father, who is in secret, place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly and when you pray do not use vain repetition as the heathens do for they think they will be heard for their many words now I lay me down to sleep I'll pray the Lord my soul to keep and when I die before I wake if I should die before I wake I pray the Lord my soul to take and I would say that every night Mom would come up and say the prayers and hide it down. And then you could tack on at the end of the prayer and bless mommy and daddy and Aunt Sue and where you go right down the list. And it was something that you could just rattle off just like that. It was a vain, repetitious prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let this food to us be blessed. Amen. Meant nothing. I had it down. After all these years, I can still just pull it right up. And what the Lord wants to hear. Imagine going up to your best friend, and you, you, you go up to him, and I go up to Jerry every day, and I say, Jerry, I think something to say now, Jerry, Jerry, you're a drummer today. Will you be a drummer every day? So every day I go to Jerry, I say, Jerry, today you're a drummer. You're a drummer today, Did I a Will you be a drummer tomorrow? And that's all I ever say to Jerry my entire life. he'll look at me and he'll turn around and walk as fast as he can the other way. You know, how intimate is that? Answer, it's not. It's not the ritual. It's the matter of the heart and the matter of a real relationship with the Lord. That's why so many people are going to be deceived because they know about the Lord. They might even say they believe in the Lord But if you ask them a question, you know the Bible says, My sheep hear my voice and follow me. Do you know what that means? Or that you've been convicted in your conscience by the Holy Spirit and you know that what you've done is wrong and that conviction can either lead to godly repentance or a hardened heart. And people who aren't born again don't experience those things, even though by ritual. And I'll, I'll go where people don't want me to go. And let's face it, when the when you um, confess your sins for years, you had to go into a little booth and confess them to the priest. And he would tell you how many Hail Marys you had to do and how many Our Fathers you had to do. And then everything's fine. And if... I used to ask my Catholic friends, well, did you ever lie that you didn't do that sin? They said, oh, yeah, we lied all the time. (laughs) And because they needed something to um, receive their penance, so to speak. And the irony of this and hypocrisy of all this is the tragedy of um, telling a person that he can't be married in ministry. And to be a priest or a nun, you have to take the vow of celibacy. Well, where does it say that in the Bible? Paul alludes to it, that he had that gift. He says, but I don't have that gift. By the way, the first Pope Peter was married. (laughs) Pope Peter was married. I wonder what they do with that one. Well, let's not get too far away without the point here. If you're in Acts chapter 2, They came back with a set of rituals, and it wasn't biblical. It wasn't what the Lord wanted. So what is the model for the church? Here's a model for church, and that is they continued steadfastly, number one. In other words, they had priorities in their life. I'm told in Hebrews that as we see the day approaching, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As the manner of some is. The manner of some is. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to go to a Wednesday night Bible study. I don't need to go to men's prayer. And yet the Bible teaches just the opposite. Do it more and more. Do what? Be continually steadfast in the apostles doctrine. What does that mean? Well that's Bible study. And then it says. That fellowship. The word there is koinonia. And. In uh, one of the books, it says the Lord is recording every word that you speak when he hears people talking about the Lord back and forth. It's all being written down, your conversation. That's interesting. And in the breaking of bread, that is remembering that the main thing is the main thing that Jesus died on the cross and that we're not, this is what he is asking us to do. Don't ever forget that this is what it's all about, the cross. And Jesus died on the cross. So how do, you, how do you practically do that? Well, as often as you do it, well, we do it the first Sunday of the month. And some people maybe like to do it more than that. It doesn't tell you how often. It just says when you've determined to make this part of your Christian walk, don't forget the breaking of, of, of bread and then remember that prayer is the lifeblood of the church thy kingdom come thy will be done and so here is the this is the the blueprint for how every church should function according to the scriptures and so when they came back from babylon They came back, let's go back and we'll finish because I'm only going to make it to chapter 7. What a surprise. (laughs) And when they came back, um, let's pick it up at verse 8 through 14. We'll just read the rest of this chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, Why don't you execute true justice and show mercy and compassion? Everyone to his brother, don't oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed, they shrugged their shoulders, they stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit. Through the former prophets, Jeremiah in view here, thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. And therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed that they would not hear, so they called out, I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known, and thus the land became desolate after them, that no one passed through or returned, for the ma- for they made the pleasant land desolate. Now, simply said, if you're out and you leave your home for 70 years, or the land, and you don't take care of the landscape around it, imagine what your front yard is going to look like. Well, that's basically what happened. 70 years of not being taken care of, and they came back to a land that wasn't, Pleasant and needed a lot of tending. Chapter 8 we'll do next week, but it's a whole shift of the Lord's temperament where he now, once again, reinforces that he has got his own plans. And um, let me just read one verse so that you can get a flavor of putting these two chapters together. Chapter 8, verse 4. Well, let's pick it up in verse 3. The Lord says, I'm going to return again to Zion. And dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now verse 4 and 5. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the street. All of chapter 8 is extremely positive and encouraging. And in closing, let me just say this. As I study the book of Revelation, and the Lord gives correction to the church, he doesn't leave you with the sting. You guys have left your first love, he says to Ephraim, uh, uh, the church of Ephesus. He says, unless you get back to your first love. And when you have your first love, then what follows that? Well, you care for the widow. You care for the guy that doesn't have anything. Your heart goes out to them, and that's your outward expression rather than religious rituals. The religious ritual satisfies your conscience, but it's not the Lord. Because the Lord's heart is always for people. Good place for an amen. And so when he corrects them, he said, either you get back to your first love or else. Whoa. And when God is saying or else to you, you better sit up and listen. He says, remember, repent, and return. And he didn't leave it there. I mean, if he would have dropped the message to Ephesus right there, how do you think you'd feel for the rest <laughs> of, of your day? Not very good. You just got spanked. But what does a good father do after he disciplines his son or his daughter? Takes him in a closet and gives him good, good spanking. How many of your mothers or fathers, after you've done it, have pulled them aside? Say, I want you to know that mommy and daddy still love you very much. And we had to do what we had to do because what you were doing was wrong. So as they've been spanked for 70 years, now they're back. We've got to deal with this ritual thing. It's got to go. I'm not into rituals. I'm into really you having a heart for other people. Not just yourself, but other people. And so what does he tell the church in Ephesus after he spanked them? Either you get this right or else. He doesn't leave it there. He says, but this you have. Ah. Oh. Word of encouragement after the spanking. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which deeds I also hate. So now he's patting them on the back after he patted them on the bottom. <laughs> are you guys getting this? And you guys are talking to people about ministering to people or counseling, anybody can point out a fault. Amen? We can be fault fighters. Easy. That's easy. The question is, can you find a fault and find an answer to help straighten them out? It says, "those Those of you who are uh, need to correct someone, consider yourself, and uh, that that same thing could happen to you. And if you're going to be correction, that very th- thing could happen to you. So, what's the example? What we're reading in Zechariah? Get rid of the ritual; make it a heart thing that only I can give. I'm not interested in religion; I'm interested in a relationship." And when you have the relationship, everything is going to naturally flow out of that. And when you have to correct your brother or your sister, you don't leave him hanging with a string uh, that you've just been spanked. But this you guys got going for him. You know, this church stuff is made up of two Latin words, nicco and laity. You hate that. Well, what is that? Well, that's a hierarchy that the church has established. From um, In Roman Catholicism, it would be from the Pope to the cardinals to the bishops and right down the ladder. And they have a hierarchy. A hierarchy over laity. Where if you ask sometime um, a Roman Catholic a question, they'll say something like this. Well, my priest says, well, I don't care what your priest says. What, what, do, you, what do you think the word of God has to say about that? And so they're dependent upon a hierarchy. And the Lord says, I hate it. But the church of Ephesus evidently took a stand against people ruling over people. And the Lord says, I hate that. And when the disciples came to him and wanted that, he just says, listen, and I'll leave with this. I think. (laughs) He says, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? You want to be a somebody when you walk through the gates, he says, then learn to be servant of all. And unless you become like a little child, what's a little child like? Well, when dad talks to him, what color's the sky? It's green. Oh, yeah, the sky's green. Why? Because my daddy said so. He, they have that faith of a child. And as a result, he says, unless you have that sort of heart, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so as it's hard to... To maintain religiosity. Good place for an amen. It's hard to stay away from it and not get caught up in the trappings of it. What's the answer? Acts 2 42. Just keep doing that. Keep in the Apostles' doctrine from Genesis to Revelation. Keep hanging. Make sure your fellowship primarily is with believers and not non believers. Where are your friends? Are your friends believers? Or are they non-believers? It's a great litmus test of where you're at with the Lord. Is communion taken sincerely? When you take it, are you really examining your heart like the Bible tells us to? Lord, this wasn't right this week, this wasn't right this week, and this wasn't right this week. And thank you for the opportunity that I have to take communion and look to you and ask for you to get my heart right so that when I go home, um, slate's clean. And then... Prayer. And prayer is something that we should do without ceasing. My mind should always be on the Lord. Yeah, we got our jobs to do on things, but when we can, one of the great things about worship and the Wednesday night Bible study, what it always does for me, gets me back to true north, where I know I should be. I better quit, because I can go on. You know I can. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight and these uh, two chapters that we got through in Zechariah. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would uh, bring back to remembrance the parts of the study that are more pertinent and apply to us. And Lord, help us keep away from being um, religious as far as the world considers religion. And Lord, help us see, let people see that we just want to serve you because we love you. And that you've given us your heart. So I pray for your word tonight as we go in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.